name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today's gospel is one that we repeat several times throughout the annual cycle of the church meetings. And typically there's four weeks in every Coptic month, but occasionally there'll be a fifth Sunday. Whenever there's a fifth Sunday, we read this again. Um, there's a lot of meaning to it, which is why we don't get sick of repeating it. There's Eucharistic connotations, there's ecclesiastical organization <coughs> connotations, but today I was hoping to meditate on it from the sense of understanding always the reminder of the church that God will provide, that we don't need to have worry, and that the Lord knows our cares, because it is actually very easy sometimes to forget this. To understand this gospel, it's also partially important that we think of another gospel that recounts the same event. This is the miracle that's in all four. And we read it every day in the Igbeya when we say, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. So the disciples actually <coughs> are in a particular mood. It's important for us to understand where everybody is coming from in this story to understand the mercy of our Lord towards everybody. The disciples have been very excited about their ministry because of the first time that God had sent them out to do their own work. So they had gone out, they had done miracles for the first time, which obviously is very exciting. Um, they had gone out and left Christ and done his own work in his name. So they're coming back exhausted on the one hand, and on the other hand they're probably excited. They want to talk to Christ about their experiences, the things that they had done. And our Lord understood this. And that's why it says, so he took them and went aside privately to a desert place belonging to the city <laughs> called Bethsaida. So he said, you know what, let's take a short retreat. You've worked very hard. Let's meditate on everything that's happened. So the apostles felt that they had earned it, um, and they wanted private time with this celebrity. And instead of having private time, the masses start coming. So you can imagine how frustrated they are that they thought they were finally going to get received, that they were finally be able to talk to one another, and instead the masses come in the thousands. And Christ doesn't talk for five minutes, he speaks for hours. If you look at the, the, the sermon that he delivered, it was a very long sermon. So the disciples are probably thinking, when is this going to end? When are they going to go home? Um, we would like to do our thing now. And yet our Lord doesn't send them away. He gives them exactly what they were coming for. The people wanted to hear the word of God. The people at this point didn't know that they were going to be fed. Right? We know the next day they follow him again, but that time because they want food. But that day they didn't know that they were going to be fed by going to him. And so we often are coming from the point of view of the apostles. Often we're saying, send the people away um, because we, we want to take care of our own needs. And we will come and say, what are we supposed to do for all these people? How are we supposed to feed them? There's not, look at what we've got. God, if we use these 200 pieces, it's not even enough to pay for a third of them. So what is the point of this? That is often how we'll feel. It's simply impossible. See you all later. Thanks for coming out. And this is similar to the story we see in the paradise. There's a monk who, his Abba asked him to do a big work. He was asked to go out into the field and to clear it. It was full of <coughs> weeds. And it was a huge piece of land. And the disciple went out 
looked at it and figured this is not happening. So what was his solution? He went to sleep. He just passed out, conked out on the ground and completely left the work saying there's no way I can accomplish this. And day after day he'd wake up, look at it, figure he can't do it and he'd just ignore it. Until finally his Abba came to see him and said, what have you done? And found he had done nothing. And the Abba looked at him, you know, if you had instead of sleeping every day, just every single day, cleared out a tiny patch, you would have been done by now. But because you looked at the, the enormousness of the task and you wanted to have it completed instantaneously, which is a problem with us today, we always want things to be instantaneous, you would have made some progress. But the people are coming because they're curious to find out the truth. They want to know who is this guy that everybody's talking about. Who is this person that's speaking? We hear about him, we heard about his miracles and all these things. And they sat through, as we said, a very long sermon. Obviously they must have been showing that they were hungry. right? Otherwise Christ would not have said, okay, go get them, them food. Probably the kids were getting very loud and anxious. There's probably kids crying and the mother is having to walk in and out. There is a, probably a sense of that. And all they wanted was to find out what this was about. But our Lord is aware of everybody's needs. He didn't ignore the apostles. He understood where they were coming from. And he also understood the people. He cared for the corporeal needs, the bodily needs of the people, as much as he cared for the spiritual. He gave them the spiritual food, but he also fed them. And this is important because sometimes in our service, we think it's enough to just say random nice words to people. Somebody's had a loss and we're just like, oh, he's in a better place or she's in a better place. Well, that's nice. Right now I'm sad, right? Those words might be nice of you, they might come from a good place, but they mean nothing to me right now. Maybe what the person needs right then is somebody to just make them food because they're dealing with kind of other things. Maybe what they need is someone to pick up the kids from school so that they can have some time to themselves. We have to think beyond just saying nice things and having good intentions. The disciples, I'm sure, had good intentions, but they wanted to do nothing, right? And this was not acceptable for our Lord. And that's why our Lord was adamant that the disciples get on their knees and serve the people. So we have to be able to sympathize and empathize with those that we serve. We need to understand where they're coming from in the same way that Christ does. But there's another important aspect to this story that we see. This miracle shows us what we call in our church synergy, okay? The, the, the concept that God doesn't force his grace on anybody. We differ from some of our, our, our brother and sister churches in the concept of economy of, of, on how we perceive grace. Many people like to emphasize that grace is a free gift and nothing but grace gets us into the kingdom. This is partially true. This is not completely incorrect. However, grace is a free gift, but we have a work to do in accepting this gift. A person can offer a gift and a person, the other person can refuse it. They can say, I don't want it. And this is why God always in his work wants us to work with him. We have a, a messed up sometimes attitude. For example, the people sometimes can have the attitude of, he knows already what I need, so why doesn't he just give it to me already? 
right? Imagine if the people sitting in the crowds, that was their way of thinking. They're like, well, he knows we're hungry. And they come at it with contempt. The disciples could have come at it being saying, doesn't he know I'm tired? Why can't he just leave me alone? And other times we come as Philip did today saying, what am I supposed to do? I don't have anything to offer. But our Lord isn't actually looking for much. He's not looking for them to do the miracle. He knew that it was going to be his miracle in the end. But he wanted them to participate. He wanted to participate in the heart, to not have an attitude of contempt. He wanted to participate in the flesh by bringing as an offering what they already have so that he could bless it, so that we could work with him, that we become participants in our own miracle, that we become participants in our own salvation. And it's funny because the apostles were the ones weak of faith, but the people did two works that day. It was them who brought the food, not the apostles, it was the people. The people brought the food. And the other work, as we said, is that they sat through a long sermon. That's not a small work. They, ha they had a long day too. So they had a willingness of mind, they had a willingness of heart, and they had a willingness to do some work. Does that mean that they are truly believers? Yes and no. But they took a risk, they took, an, they took a leap of faith. And sometimes we forget that faith is work. And so we are working with His grace. Look at Abraham. It says that when Abraham was called by God and God said to him, come Abraham and I will make a great nation of you, follow me and I will be your God, you will be my people, only hold to this covenant. It says Abraham believed. He simply believed, and then it says, and God counted this as righteousness. He hadn't done a single thing. Like at that point, he hadn't done anything. He simply said, okay, I'm going to take your word on this. And God saw that that was a marvelous work because he knows how difficult that is to do. It isn't easy to listen to a random voice telling you to do something. Most people thought he was crazy. I'm sure that his, his relatives thought, are you sure of what you're doing? You're saying that you heard a random voice telling you to get up and walk around. Where you're going, no idea. When you're going to get this promise, you have no idea. How long it's going to take, you have no idea. Does this sound sane to you? Most people would say that he was psychotic. Because if he wasn't so sure of the voice of God, he would be. But he took an act of faith. He took a leap of faith. That was his work. But he wasn't dishonest with God. We see that after he makes the formal covenant, and God keeps coming back saying, don't worry, I'm going to do this. Abraham isn't shy to say to him, well, when? Like, I, I believe you, but is there like a sign? <laughs> is there something? But because now what happened is that by taking this act of faith, he entered into a relationship. And when he entered into a relationship, there's a freedom to dialogue. You're allowed to have this conversation. You're allowed to say, I, I believe you, but I'm struggling. I believe you, but it's difficult. I believe you, but, and our Lord gets it. That's what we're seeing in the story. He understands it. He knows why the person is saying this. He also knows what he's going to do. Look at the man with the withered arm, the guy with that, the, the, the paralyzed arm. He can't move his arm. And he comes to Christ wanting to be healed. And our Lord says to him, stretch out your arm. We use this example many times. Because it's a very profound example to me of how our God wants us to participate. Imagine if a person went to a physician today saying, I'm coming to you because my arm doesn't work. And the physician says, well, the solution is for you to move it. 
the person is going to feel ripped off and go find himself a doctor who understands the fact that he can't move the arm. But our Lord understands the work that he's going to do, but says, I want you to make a work. I want you to put an effort. I want to bless where you're coming from. Stretch out your arm, and I will meet your arm with my grace. Just have the intention to try. Just have the willingness to stretch forth your arm, and I will touch it myself, and you'll be healed. If the person chose not to exercise this faith, he would have left home, he would have left for his house that day upset, feeling that he didn't get to have any, any grace that day. The disciples did the same thing when they chose to follow Christ. Literally, Christ just said, leave everything, follow me. And they said, sure, no problem. They were unlike the other people who said, oh, first let me bury my mother. First let me attempt a business. First let me, they just got up and left. This act of faith entered into relationship and we see very clearly that the disciples lacked faith overall. They, they said some very ridiculous things, and yet our Lord was never angry with them for this. And we see even more importantly, a very important line in the Gospels when Christ visits his hometown. And it says that Christ there, not would not, could not work a miracle because of their unbelief. God desires our belief, our trust, for Him to work. So we have to do work. The problem is sometimes we think we are doing a work and our work isn't working. So we, we feel like, okay, well, I did something um, and I saw nothing in return. And often this is because we are mis misguided. Very often this is the case. Sometimes we have a very wrong approach with God. And so we come to God instead of saying, I'm not sure what you're going to do, but here's the fish that we have. Here are the five loaves and two fish. Instead, we come at him saying, if you think you can do something with these fish, go ahead. And we have this attitude of, of contempt. This is ridiculous. If you think you can do it, go for it. As for me, I, I, I don't see where you're going with this. This is not the attitude that allows us to have a, a, a work of God. We can't be contemptuous um, with our God. And this is why the Lord says, don't tempt me. Right? There's a reason why, why God says, don't tempt the Lord your God. It's not because he's this vicious, angry, tyrant, uh, tyrant who, who doesn't like us. But because to tempt the Lord your God means you don't love him. Think of any strong relationship you have in your life. Would you go to other person and say, if you love me, you would do one, two, three, four, five. Do you really love me? Do you really love me? If you have to ask that question, you don't trust the other person. It's a given. If you have to perpetually put at them a test of, of their love, you are not in a relationship. You're, you're in something else, but it's not a good relationship. Our God wants the same thing from us, because the first command was to love him. If we love him and trust him, if a, if a kid says to his parent perpetually, if you really love me, you would buy me this. If you really love me, you would get me this. The parent is just like, you don't understand my love. And if the parent doesn't understand the child either, and says, well, if you love me, you would never have done this, and if you love me, never this, this, and this, you're, you're teaching them the wrong thing. It's a two-way street. <coughs> so we don't tempt the Lord our God, and so we sometimes think we're doing a work, but it's the wrong work, or it's being said in the wrong way. Sometimes we come with contempt. Sometimes we come with arrogance. Sometimes we think we know everything. And that this is the only solution. So we want God to work through our solution. This is the way. 
Imagine if Philip instead said, okay, well, there's 200 denarii. What you're going to have to do, Christ, is now you need to go, send somebody to the village, get this, and then maybe we can do this and start planning for God. <coughs> that wasn't God's intent either. And so we will have self-defined the solution for God and expect him to work specifically in our manner. And sometimes we come with a challenge where it's like, okay, here you go, take this God, are you up to this one? And again, this takes in a whole other dynamic. Sometimes we come with presumptuousness, sometimes we think more of ourselves than we ought to, and sometimes we come with an expectation of his failure, where we come in being like, okay, here's the final test. If God does this, great, and if he doesn't, I'm fed up with God because he didn't do what I wanted. All of these are not ways that you're going to be able to find his grace, because you're coming at him all you, all anger, all self. And God is not looking for that. God is looking for us to enter into relationship. We used the example in this church before. The easiest concept to understand this is, is your relationship with your children or your nephews or your nieces. Right? If you love a child, and this child is your own, your child didn't do anything to warrant your love. He simply is. Or she, she simply is. She just exists. And by virtue of relationship, you love unconditionally. And the child never ceases to be a child. The child can rebel, can change his or her last name, run away from home, tattoo the, their whole bodies, get earrings, anything to look differently from what would be your child, change their name to show you they hate you. At the end of the day, they're your child. And you're going to keep loving them irrespective of what they do. It's going to be impossible for you to not. But the, the relationship is the key to this grace and work relationship. Is that you're going to pour your child over that child's love. You're going to nurture them. You're going to care for them. Especially when they're helpless. But as they get older and as they acquire their own mind and their own intellect, they have choices. They have the choice whether or not they want to have a relationship with you or not. They have a choice whether they want to accept your gifts or not. They have a choice whether or not they care about what you think. This is their freedom. So when our God says to us, I love you, we have the option of saying, that's nice, I don't really care. Just like our children have the same choice to do the same thing. You might want to get your child a tutor because you see that they're struggling in school, but the child might say, I don't care, I don't want this. But when there's a relationship of love, there's a continual giving of these gifts, not because the person warranted it, not because your works made you love them more, but because there's a relationship of love. You can accept and you can give. This is what our Lord wanted from us. Grace is free, but it requires a willingness to accept. And that acceptance is a work that only makes sense in the context of relationship. If there isn't a relationship, you're going to have confusion. This is why our God says that we are fellow workers with him. St. Paul says this, you are fellow workers, and this is a great humility on God's part. of saying, I want you to participate with me in the work. This is a great honor for us. We need to have open minds and open hearts, because we can still mess up. But if we have that relationship, even if it's a messed up relationship, God can work through it. St. Paul, the patron of this church, had a relationship with God. He had messed up philosophies, that's why he was going around killing people. But because he had actually an intention of the heart, a sincere one, God could work with him. That's why God spoke to him on the way. Even though he was wrong, God knew where he was coming from and met him on the way. 
Saint Athanasius, we actually often don't talk about this. He was originally a pagan. Like we talk about this miracle that we're reading today, but he was a pagan. He had a willingness to learn. It was said that he was so obsessed with reading scripture that he was like scrounging up money and paying this lady to keep getting him pieces of Paul's epistles. And he couldn't get enough of them. He had a willingness of heart to learn and converted. Those of you have heard of Father Lazarus in Egypt, staunch atheist, devout philo philosopher and professor of philosophy, but just a willingness, a willingness to hear something true was enough for God to be able to penetrate his heart. Because God wants to. The question is whether or not you want or not, whether you are willing or not to accept grace. May God grant us all to have our hearts and our minds open to his work and his grace that we might realize the honor of being fellow laborers with him in his vineyard. And glory be to our God.